0: Previously, on Living and Effective, Season 2. How did you expect your life to go? I would
1: find an institution, whether in East Africa or in the U.S., would put down roots and start a long career.
2: We feel betrayed by God. He obviously is the one who could have stopped it, and he didn't.
1: Psalm 88 ends with, Darkness is my only companion. There are times where that's the end of my prayer. I can't make much more sense of things than that.
3: One time I had this brain scan, and the lady basically said all of the emotional parts of your brain fire a little overactive, except the anger sector, which is a little underactive. Something from your childhood told you to repress the anger part of your brain.
4: You think that's what I want? I'm going, yeah, God, give, give my one-year-old guy a, a nice, you know, journey with cancer so I can be more spiritual. Nobody wants these things.
1: I've lived long enough, but why does God want to take away
0: my kid's dad? Popoff was caught offering empty promises red-handed thanks to an intercepted recording. So when someone is so clearly exposed as lying about reality, their followers will finally reject the pretense of a guaranteed escape from their grief, right?
5: I was flipping through channels and I came across Black Entertainment Television, BET, and there was Peter Popoff. So I was shocked that he still had a career.
2: Bargaining. It's, you know, if I this, then you that.
0: This is Diane Langberg, practicing psychologist and the author of Suffering and the Heart of God.
2: And people sometimes do it as part of grieving in the sense of, well, if I just do this, then these things won't happen to me anymore, or something that I want in place of this will happen. It's another way of trying to avoid the full-blown truth of the loss.
0: I'm Richard Clark. And I'm Joy Beth Smith. The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective Season 2, a podcast about what happens when the Bible and humanity collide. Joy Beth, do you ever yell at the TV set? Absolutely. Why?
3: <laughs> I get uh, viscerally upset on a regular basis about uh, anything from... The Bachelor results.
0: Uh huh. To and you yell at it in the, in the in the privacy of your own home. You're I yell just... at
3: books. I yell at the TV. You
0: yell at books
3: all the time. Interesting. Uh, you don't.
0: No, because I'm j- I'm just reading. It d- it doesn't hear me. <laughs> I grew up with my dad yelling at the TV. He would watch the news and just say, "Oh, give me
6: a break,"
0: <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that.
3: Well, I don't sound like that when I yell at
0: it. What do you sound like?
3: Oh my gosh! Why would you give the rose to that girl? Oh,
0: Okay, yeah. So you are making arguments. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> I have a theory about why we do that. Is because when we're reading a book or watching TV, we're doing something that is very isolated and passive. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, we're sort of craving for some form of interaction, oh. even if we, if it's not with a person, right? If it's just with ideas or characters, right? Um. Or a game show where you try and win a marriage for some reason. <laughs> you don't think say about that it,
3: like it's a wild idea. Well, it's
0: clearly a wild idea. I don't think I have to say it like it's a wild idea. So it, it like TV doesn't require interaction, but we sort of insert ourselves into interaction. You know, I bet a lot of people were like, no way. When they saw Peter pop off on TV again, after just being utterly exposed as a fraud, the next thing they know, he's back on the airwaves. And Popov's particularly shameless in that he never really paid lip service to something like that or showed regret or repentance like other disgraced televangelists have done. He just picked up where he left off. He started repeating the same promises with the same delivery that he always had. But imagine you don't know who he is. Imagine you're not gasping that they let this guy back on TV. You don't know him. You're watching TV. You're just sort of passing away the time and you're desperate for your life to change but you've sort of given up on that moment. Or you're on autopilot and this guy pops up and literally invites you to interact. The nature of a Peter Popoff television show is interactive. He gives you a way to very specifically take control of your life. Here's Mark Oppenheimer.
5: Well, I mean, Popoff, again, he was always more of a late night, you know, high up on the cable box uh, figure. But millions and millions of people had flipped past his show at one point or another. Powerful.
6: I just feel the yo. I feel the heaviness I feel the Holy Ghost doodads Flowing up and down my spine <laughs> Amen I want you to touch my hands On the television screen Come a little bit
0: closer I'm going to pray, pray. This is more stuff from Pop-Off's infomercials to my hands on the It's pretty clear screen. he wants to give way. the viewer A I'm deeper to, connection Than they might get from the typical Late night TV watching experience There's no distance in prayer
6: I'm going to send this Powerful healing virtue transfer I, I believe it's going to be transferred into your life here it comes out touch my hands come a little closer and agree with me father in heaven you see everyone who's watching who has pain that man with prostate cancer the woman with pain in her feet my god let your healing anointing and power flow out over the airwaves right now
5: like, the key thing when he comes back after about 10, 10 years Jesus, away is that Christ he's not answer. Looking for a white audience anymore. I invite
6: you. Oh, I just feel that Holy Ghost vibrations moving up and down my spine, through my arms. They're flowing to you. I can just sense it right now. Bondage is being broken, heaviness is rolling away. I can see the supernatural debt cancellation taking place right now. You're going to get good
5: news. So previously, taking advantage of the integrated nature of the Pentecostal community, right, he always had people of all races at his revivals, but he was principally targeting, you know, the majority white white culture that we live in. Most of his money was probably coming from white people.
6: Ideas that God is going to give you that will produce instant cash. I know that. Get ready.
5: Get ready. Get ready. When he comes back in the late 90s, back onto TV, he starts buying a lot of time on on BET, which is a black channel, which is the major black cable channel, black entertainment television. And my theory on this is that he just figured out they were far less likely to have known what happened to him on Johnny Carson. You know, I went to one of his revivals, as I talk about in my GQ article. I didn't get the sense that there were people who were just pop-off loyalists, who just were there because they'd always been following. The people I met were at the revival in Washington, D.C., where I did talk to a lot of them. None of the people I talked to, none of them were ready to sort of sell everything and follow (laughs) Pop-Off. They were people who'd seen his TV show, who figured that the miracles they saw on TV and the testimonials they saw on TV had to be valid because those looked like good, honest folk, and, you know, it was relatively well-produced, and it looked like honest TV, and they just believed it. You know, they figured, why not? Why not come?
0: You can kind of understand why people show up to these pop-off events, right?
3: Absolutely. I, I think it's almost similar to in watching The Bachelor, and then, you know, uh, they invite you to a casting. <gasps> have I gone to a Bachelor casting? Sure.
0: Okay, that's crazy. It's you not... went You
3: went to one?
0: Yes. Why? Explain.
3: Because you hope that maybe some chance you'll be a person cast, and you might have your life changed. And it would change your life.
0: It's a way, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Okay. <laughs>
3: Did I make it to the third round? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so,
0: For you, um, singing is a great way to live, but it's also a struggle for you. Yeah. And you want to be married, right? Yep. It's something you desire for yourself. Yes. So you're watching this show about marriage. Yeah. And you're like, and they're like, uh, you can do something about that. Yeah. And your response is what? Done. Let's go. <laughs> Why did that appeal to you so much?
3: If we're just speaking frankly, it's the thing that you feel that you have no control over and that you've tried desperately to fix, but you can't. And it feels outside of your realm of control. It feels outside of your influence. It's basically like standing in line with 8,000 other people. And there's someone at the front of it who's giving away lottery tickets. And you know that everyone in that line hopes that they will win. But why can't it be me?
0: Why not me? Yeah.
3: Some level that desperation drives you to do... What seems like crazy things, because those crazy things work out, seemingly, for some people. So you do this wild adventure, and you take this Instagram post, and you just make a joke of it. But there's a little piece of you that hopes that your lottery ticket is a winner.
0: And in a way, that act is heroic, from my perspective, at least. Like, you could wallow, right? You could wallow, or you could do something to make it happen. This is like your way of taking control and trying to make it happen one way or another. I think I've mentioned this before. I submitted a prayer request to the Peter Popoff website. It was just, I would like to have an interview with Peter Popoff. And uh, I got several responses back. I've got an email response. I've got now two letter responses sent to my office mailbox. And the last one I got illustrated this really well, I think. So in this letter, Peter Popoff says, It's not unusual for God to send those with hard cases to me. No disrespect to anyone, but in my spirit I feel you've tried to get help before, but to no avail. Many are not anointed to deal with difficult cases. Perhaps this anointing is so strong upon me... Because I've personally overcome some of the same challenges you're now facing in my own life. Richard, he calls me by my first name. Richard, in my prayer time, God showed me some of the hard things you're now dealing with. God gave me this word for you. Fear not, my son, the hard things you're now facing will soon be a thing of the past. For during the next several months, I will use my servant to lead thee into deliverance and reveal unto thee the steps of faith that will break all evil holds in your life and release miracles of love, success, new health, and joyous living unto thee. Richard, now in Jesus' name, open the envelope that has the miracle spring water in it. Before you use it, lay it next to your bed tonight only. I believe the angel of the Lord will trouble this water as you sleep at night. Yes, this is a harvest of great income. After you use the miracle spring water exactly as I direct, take the small sticker, write your name on it, and put it in an empty container. When I get it back, I'll know that you have acted in faith and followed the instructions of the man of God. I'm asking you to plant a holy consecrated seed for a great harvest, offering of $19. No, I don't want you to send 39 or 99. No, send exactly $19 because one is the number of the father and nine is the father's number of new birth send it back to me along with the empty Miracle Spring Water packet when you return the page inside the sealed envelope to me I'll send you the remainder of the seven secret prophetic events and then it goes on for a while about what those are I guess I'm not going to get an interview with Peter Popoff Because I don't think I'm going to send them $19. Now, I don't think most people believe that wholeheartedly. But I do think that people think it's worth a try. I get it. You're desperate. (laughs) Here's one possible solution. Nineteen dollars. There's that sort of appeal to people who are like trying to just take control mm-hmm. of their lives in a way that's really human and natural. I think on this point, Cassie Hinn, who was previously involved in Benny Hinn's Prosperity Gospel Ministry, actually gets right to the heart of it.
4: Mm-hmm. Richard, if you and I were really honest, even as Christians, in our most weak, human, frail, even sinful Lustful state. What do we really want? We want comfort, right? We got to be honest. We we want comfort. Yeah, I, I want a paycheck. Don't you? Yeah, I want to make sure I can pay that mortgage. I want my kids to have food. I want my wife to be taken care of. I don't want my kids to be sick. That's not what we want. At, at the very core of who we are. I was in India a couple months ago, spending time with some pastors. And one of my favorite things to do now, of course, after having gone to these countries and exploited people, I like to go there and spend time with them. And the pastors and I were in a room together. And this man pipes up and he says, a younger pastor, he's 29 years old. And he says, so I got a question for you, Pastor Hin.' I said, yeah, go ahead. He said, so what do you expect us to do? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're telling us that all this about the prosperity gospel what should we preach? What do you expect from us? And I could tell he was upset. And I said, well, preach the true gospel, be faithful and, and let God determine the rest. And he starts crying. And through, instead of now an aggressive voice, it was this pleading. And he said, but you don't understand. They'll leave our churches. And all of a sudden the room, you could hear a pin drop. And he's a pastor of a conservative Baptist church in India. He said, If I don't preach some prosperity gospel, at least a little bit, they'll leave my church. People don't want to hear it. They're tired of it. They don't want to hear the real message. They don't want to hear that there's challenges. These are poor people. They want the hope. They want to be told it's going to be okay. They want to be told that God is going to give them things. So, you know, you expect me to just let people go, walk out the door. How will I have a church? There'll be nothing left this old pastor who was quietly sitting in the corner just burst out and said, you be faithful. And he looked at the young man and again, through tears, he said, you be faithful. You let God decide. He will bless your faithfulness. You will face him one day and he will be pleased with you because you were faithful.
0: You can see the moment this other pastor stops being angry and starts bargaining with Costi. I relate to that. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly trying to bargain my way out of pain.
3: I see bargaining throughout all of my life. Bargaining with people. Uh Bargaining with God. It's funny because I don't consider myself a particularly contentious person. Mm. Um, I went to India and bargaining is a large part of their culture. And I actually hated it. Like I didn't want any part of that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, But it's it's actually been through this podcast where I'm like, oh, yeah, I do that. Yeah. Just regularly. Yeah. And especially through singleness of uh, just kind of wanting desperately to figure out what the formula is. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's not so, okay, fine, Jesus. You can take the husband and the picket fence and the kids. But I, I felt like there were kind of like these, these, uh, consolation prizes that you you were insured if you didn't get those if you didn't get that big thing mm-hmm. um, that I had been promised then it was like oh, okay you get to jet set as a single and you get to have the sophisticated single life yeah um, but again it was sort of like oh no that's prosperity gospel round two yeah if
0: not this then this yeah yeah and and the way that he says can we just do a little bit of prosperity gospel is actually like really convicting I love how blatant he is at least in that story, he's blatant about it. I think oftentimes I'm asking that question and just not saying it, right?
3: Well, I like that he equated it to hope. Yeah. Because he was like, They're, they live in poverty. They need a little bit of hope. Uh-huh. And I was like, yes. Yes. We do. Yeah, We totally. do need a little bit of hope. Uh-huh, yep. But at the end of the day, that's not that's not actually hope. Right. You know, it, well, it's just a false hope.
0: Yeah. I read a lot of self-help books. <laughs> The reason is I'm sorry, that's not funny. <laughs> the reason is not because I want to uh be more and more aware of what's bad. The reason is I want to know that I'm going to improve over the course of my life and mm-hmm. that my life is going to improve as a result. If I'm trying only, to level up.
3: Yeah, if I can only get better, if I can only become the best version of myself.
0: Exactly. And I mean that kind of hope is a powerful idea. It's something that's very Christian in its origins. But sometimes hope itself can become a type of idol that blinds us to our reality, whether we want to improve ourselves or just save ourselves from death. This idea, by the way, is something that Todd Billings says is surprisingly common. He told me about the differences in expectation and anxiety at the end of life for the religious and non-religious. Those
1: who tend to have the most anxiety are those who are not really sure where they're at Mm -hmm. um, religiously. There is one exception, though, that I've been puzzling with to that sociological trend, and that is when it comes to heroic measures. There have been several studies done to say that committed, again, primarily Christians, Mm -hmm. are over three times as likely to ask for heroic measures at the end of life than those who are less religious and what do you mean by heroic measures aggressive treatments at the end of life which have virtually no chance of having any healing properties yeah um it's the doctors talk about it as a sort of lottery ticket chance They always have, or just about always have, pretty severe side effects such that, you know, a person can't communicate with their family. And, Mm -hmm. you know, these are, these are, it's someone who is in their last months of life. Yeah. And it's to give them really extreme treatment. This has been a thing I've puzzled about for several years. And the medical community is puzzled about it because they did a study on it. And, you know, it's the sociologists who they took a survey. This is at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center. And the reasons that people gave for this were theological. Hmm. So um, the reasons were, um, I want extreme measures to give God another chance to give me a miracle. Mm -hmm. Um, I want another chance to give God another chance to heal me. Some reasons had to do with every heartbeat belongs to God. So I want as many heartbeats as possible. Sure. This category of treatment is very, very clear. Overall does not extend your life. It increases dramatically the pain and suffering of the patients and their families. Those who have heroic measures, their families are much, much more likely to have major depressive episodes like six months after after the death. Partly because they can't get, they weren't able to get closure I've seen this again and again as I've been immersed in the cancer community where the only faithful response when somebody is very near death is, pray for a miracle. Yeah. Pray for a miracle. At one point, a family member was updating people and say, you know, said, pray that he becomes a grandparent. And his kids were my age. I mean, the, the age of my kids, so sure. under five. But it was just a few days later. That he went into hospice and huh. a day later he was dead. Wow. So clearly he was dying. He was very close to death. Yeah. And I'm sure the doctors were honest with them at that point. But at that point, what Faith was saying, and these are brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not doubting that they're Christians, but right. what Faith was saying was don't believe what the doctor's saying. The doctor's saying that he's about ready to die, but what yeah. we need to believe is that he's going to become a grandparent. He's going to live for 30 more years.
3: When Billings was talking there at the end, he used the word faith. And he was like, their faith compels them to basically ignore everything that they're hearing, ignore the monitors, ignore the doctors, ignore the beeping of the heart devices, and let your faith tell you the impossible, Mm -hmm. basically, which is that the day's length that you know Uh, that the doctors have told you that you have left with this person that you desperately love, that is not true, and that you're to pray for grandparenthood. Right. It's admirable in a small way, and it reminds me of the heroic conversation we had earlier Mm -hmm. of doing something that seems impossible and against all odds.
0: Right, yeah, and that, that kind of approach is a specific type of bargaining that both the person suffering and the people comforting that person often experience. People bargain on others' behalf. That's just a thing that happens, and that may seem like a kind thing to do, but in some ways, it can put unnecessary pressure on the person who's suffering, especially when they try to come to terms with the inevitable. That's a tension that Todd Billings is dealing with on a regular basis.
1: I had a stem cell transplant six years ago this month. They said if I made it five years with of a partial remission with this transplant, that would be, that would be good. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say what sort of life expectancy is for someone my age because most people are in their 80s when they're diagnosed with this. Right. But there are definitely people who are my age when they're diagnosed to die within a year. Hmm. And then there are some who live a decade or more. Wow. The fact that I've had six years does not mean that I have – a weaker form of the cancer. Every time I talk to my oncologist, he reminds me of that. He says, I've had patients who have had a long initial partial remission. yeah, And then when it comes back, nothing we threw out, it makes any difference. And then usually I ask and clarify, because I've seen this happen with my cancer quite a few times. So they're dead within a year. And he says, yeah, they're dead
0: within a year. So a minute ago, Todd was referencing the type of prayer request that was kind of awkward for him, that another young, dying man might live to be a grandparent. But back in our first episode, even Timothy Brown, Todd's friend and seminary president, said something very similar about Todd Billings. Yeah. I hope he grows Sweet Tim. to be a grandpa. Here's the clip again.
1: Lord, if it is your will, take him as a very old man enjoying the gift of grandchildren. I mean, I pray that every day.
0: But also, like, of course he would. Any good friend would want that for his friend. Of course. And what's so striking to me is how admirable that rec- that uh, hope is and how vulnerable it is to express it out loud Yeah. when you know it might not be real. I don't think he's fooling himself. But, like, even Todd references Tim at one point and says, you know, even Tim struggles with some of this. That's a lot to take in.
1: But it's actually easier for me to take in than for some of my loved ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And even for Tim Brown, who you talk to.
0: I think all of us, like, beyond entitlement for ourselves, sometimes really start struggling to trust God with other people's lives. Especially when we see them in an unjust situation.
3: And I think it would be unfair of us to question the faith of Tim in this situation to say... Tim doesn't understand the goodness of God as much as Todd does because he's not accepting Mm -hmm. the fate. I I think what we might see is something like Todd is staring it down himself and so he has to come to a realization of it in a different way.
0: Totally different perspective. That's right.
3: The point of view really does help you kind of metabolize the, the truth in a way that someone who's not experiencing it wouldn't understand.
0: Yeah, totally. Now Todd finds himself essentially trying to come to terms with his new reality, all while surrounded by people in a totally different reality. At one point, I heard him describe this experience as feeling like an expat. You've left one country and gone to another, and, and all of a sudden, like, you don't fit in. Like, your background and the sort of preconceived notions you have about life are just totally different.
1: Their tendency is to pray that I am the exception. Mm-hmm in terms of the statistics to basically kind of assume that i will be the exception mm-hmm. in terms of the statistics. And I'm okay in some sense with them praying that I'm not a prayer police, but if I'm going to live responsibly as a parent and a spouse, I can't assume that I'm going to be the exception in day-to-day life. Like many of the people who are around me and who love me, they assume I will be the exception because it would be too much for them to to take in. I've come to be
0: patient with that. But why is this so hard? Why is it that death, something each of us is guaranteed to experience and encounter, so difficult to come to terms with?
1: Even into the 1940s, you had... You know, 80% of deaths taking place in homes in America. And so most children would have had the experience or many children of basically being hospice workers for their grandparents. Now we've taken death, put it in institutions, out of sight. We've turned it into kind of a spectacle for Netflix and, you know, political debates. But it's not something that applies to me
0: or to you all the opportunities and privileges that i have have caused me to see death and lack as exceptions to the norm rather than fundamental realities of human existence as a result whenever i come in contact with them i start looking for other exceptions i mean if i'm gonna suffer or if someone close to me is gonna suffer aren't i owed something in return isn't that the only way this makes sense but biblically, that's just not the way it works.
1: I strongly resist the idea that God gave me cancer um, so that mm-hmm. I could bear witness in the particular way I did in the Lament book or that sort of thing.
0: Uh huh. Why um, do you resist that idea?
1: Well, because I think there are biblical reasons for thinking that we simply don't know why God allows. Uh huh. God can do, God does do good things through our weakness and through even terrible things that happen. But yeah. it's not a justification for why what happens. I mean, the whole book of Job takes place on these two levels, on the human level where all this disaster's happening, and mm-hmm. then on the divine level and the divine counsel, we never get a reason. We never get a good human reason why this has been allowed by God. We know it's been allowed. Yeah. And Paul in The Thorn of the Flesh, he never gets a reason besides the living Christ says to him that my power is made perfect through weakness and that you know, not answering his prayer of taking away this thorn in the flesh mm-hmm. is helping to show this um, to Paul. But that's, again, it's not
0: the sort of reason that we're looking for. There's that moment that everyone thinks of when they think of Job where God literally comes down and sets everyone straight. Mm-hmm. I don't know a more uncomfortable book. And probably one of the most uncomfortable moments is when God comes down and says, I'm not going to tell you why I'm doing this. <laughs> like there's this whole apologetic discipline situated around asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? God comes down and says, you can't know. It's that simple. And Job says, I don't have any more questions. Thank you. Sir. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so funny. Even Job's friends did this, right? Where they show up and they say, okay, but we got the answer to this. Yeah. We have figured this out. And they have about four different reasons for why this is happening. Job has his own reason, which is like God hates me, basically. So everyone has their reasons. What is that impulse? What causes us to continue to do that?
3: That desire for clarity is, you know, it's pervasive. It's through Mm -hmm. so much of our life. but. It is something that, it's, it's kind of like unshakable in me. Yeah. I, I couldn't turn it off even if I wanted to.
0: The impulse to seek answers isn't unnatural. It's probably one of our most visceral instincts. But it's often exploited by people like Peter Popoff, who build new worlds and peddle alternate realities where anything is possible. Sometimes I like to think about what my life would be like if I had a winning lottery ticket. My debts would be paid. My family would be taken care of, I'd have nights and weekends currently lost to freelance and side hustles. What if my dad's death and my own mounting financial struggles are just the beginning of something great? What if this is the start of a beautiful story I'll tell one day, one that has a redemptive ending? What if the price I'm paying now is really just the cost of a winning lottery ticket that'll pay off extraordinarily in the future? Diane Langberg talked to us about the delicate process of unearthing these bargaining impulses in ourselves and in others.
2: I say, so help me understand your thoughts about God and your life and, and what you've expected from Him. Sometimes when you do that with people, the light goes on without you telling them. But it also affords opportunities to say, well, what do you think about this? or why do you think that happened if what you're saying is true you're not saying don't believe that it's wrong here's the right way to think (laughs) you're sort of musing out loud when you take a harder approach and just instruct somebody that what they're thinking is wrong and here's the right way if they don't agree with you it's broken the relationship or they won't trust you anymore so that breaks it so it has to be done very carefully and slowly
0: Yeah, this is not going to surprise you, but I just keep thinking of Job's friends.
2: Yes, the best thing they did for him was shut up. (laughs) They couldn't stop talking and explaining it all. And God commended the fact that they shut up. Part of what you're saying is this happened and I don't like it. So if you do this for me, then I'll do that. So there's acceptance in it. That's sort of tiny little... Green grass coming out.
0: So I turn to the Bible and cash in verses that I hope prove that the Lord really does want a good life and happiness for me. I'm able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Or I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And we hope it works so that some of this pain or despair or this suffocating sense of loss is alleviated, even just a little. Living and Effective is a collaboration between CT Creative Studio and the Christian Standard Bible. All of Season 2 is available now at livingandeffective.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Living and Effective is hosted by me, Richard Clark. It's written and produced by me, my co-host Joybeth Smith, and Cray Allred. Additional writing by Nick Reinerson, Michael Wojcik, and Nick Thompson. Music from Yawns, Sweeps, and The Grey Havens. Audio from the television program Peter Popoff, Miracle Ministry was used in this episode. There's no distance in prayer. On the next chapter of Living and Effective, season two.
3: There are often times where we'll come in and you'll play something and it'll make me cry, but I love it, it's like a a measurement.
1: We are dust. That's actually good news for us. We're not healthy when we act like we are in control.
2: You get to the place that is the darkest and you can't see the way forward.
1: When you pray, darkness is my only companion, you are trusting in the God of the covenant, even in your desolation.
2: It drowns your hope. I mean, clearly somebody's not gonna come back to life.
3: The memories I do have of the really low moments, kept picturing awful things happening and I couldn't get it out of my head.
0: I don't know why God did it.
2: And think about the cross. Grieving is a taste of the fellowship of his sufferings.